We're going to continue in Luke's gospel. In chapter 21 is where we're at. We have gone as far as verse 8. Middle schoolers, you are dismissed at this time as they'll be going up in the youth room for their lesson. The rest of us, as I mentioned, Luke's gospel, the third book of the New Testament, third gospel, chapter 21. We have gone as far as verse 8. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We'll get you a Bible. There's some towards the front platform. You can grab one. But as we have been uh, looking at chapter 21, we are uh, ones that uh, as we go through this chapter, this chapter is dedicated to what we call the Olivet Discourse. As we are introduced to this teaching of Jesus that he gives to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, just east of the Temple Mount, also recorded in Matthew chapter 24 and Mark chapter 13. It is the longest teaching of Jesus in the Gospels next to the Sermon on the Mount, which is just a little bit longer in length. Jesus, at the end of his last full day of public ministry, as we saw in the previous chapter, we saw the religious leaders coming to him. And they're asking them questions, trying to find a reason to have him be arrested by the Roman authorities, uh, to trap him, to trick him. They are angry at him. They are wanting to destroy Jesus. He knows what they're up to. And at the end of the day, it tells us, as Dr. Luke records, that they dare not ask any questions because he had answered their questions so perfectly. He would then, at the end of the day, turn to the people and he would give a series of woes that's recorded in Matthew chapter 23, rebuking the hypocrisy and the religiousness of the religious leaders. And then he would leave. He is withdrawn from the people. He is withdrawn from any address to the religious leaders before the people. His public ministry has come to an end. He begins to walk across the temple precincts. He's walking across the court of the Gentiles. He goes to the court of the women, which is the next court. He looks and he sees at the end of the day, as all the worshipers are going home for the day, he sees a lone widow who gives in two mites to the treasury box. And he commends her for giving sacrificially. And then he continues to walk uh, as he's headed towards the eastern gate to the Mount of Olives. And one of the disciples, Mark's gospel tells us, points up at the temple and, and says, look at these beautiful, huge stones, this magnificent temple. And I think that perhaps as the disciples are doing that, and this one disciple makes this comment, it's been a long day. It's been a very intense last couple days ever since Jesus rode into Jerusalem there uh, in his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday and all this opposition against him and, and uh, the religious leaders. He dare not stay the night in Jerusalem. He would leave and go to the Mount of Olives or to Bethany is what the Gospels tell us. And here at the end of his last public day of ministry, as they're looking at the temple, and the temple, of course, as you know, was a magnificent building. Keep in mind, it was one of the wonders of the world uh, as far as building. It was overlaid with gold. We know that the temple itself was 23 stories high. That was unheard of in ancient buildings. We know that it had uh, pillars of marble, white marble, that is recorded, brought in uh, by the Romans. Huge stones that were 180 tons that were used in building the foundation of the temple and of the walls and the courts that went around it. Some of these stones you can see today, 180 tons. They don't know how they got those stones in place. So precise were the stones cut that they didn't use mortar. 
that they would have those stones fit perfectly to where there's just a hairline fracture in between the stones. So it's an incredible building. And I think that the disciple that said, hey, look at these ornate, beautiful stones. Look at this temple. It's like he's saying it's not that bad. Look at this place. Look how wonderful it is. And when Jesus hears that, he says the time is going to come when not one stone is going to be upon another and it's going to be cast down. And the disciples would be, of course, shocked, to say the least, when they heard that. They equated the temple being destroyed with the end of the world and the second coming. So they asked him, when will these things be? That is the destruction of the temple. And what are the signs of your coming in the end of the age? So Jesus, as he continues across the Kidron Valley, past the Garden of Gethsemane, where in a short time he's going to be arrested and bound up, and he's going to be taken away to a series of trials that will lead him to Calvary. He goes up on the Mount of Olives, and it tells uh, us in the Gospels that they came to him. Matter of fact, Mark tells us that it was James and John and Andrew and Peter, those two sets of brothers, that came to him privately and asked them these questions. And Jesus gives this private briefing to them that you and I have the privilege to be able to listen in on. And so as we read in verse 8, that Jesus said, that take heed that you do not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time has drawn near, therefore do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. And then he said to them, verse 10, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilence. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. And verse 12, but before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, deliver you to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And so as we look at this section of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus given this teaching from the Mount of Olives that looked over the temple. Beautiful sight there. And as he's teaching them, he talks about, first of all, in verse 8, deception. Second of all, wars and commotions in verses 9 and 10. Thirdly, earthquakes and pestilence and famines and signs in heaven in verse 11. And then fourthly, persecution in verse 12. Jesus tells us that there are signs and that these signs, as Matthew and Mark records for us, are the beginning of sorrows. I want to read to you from Mark's narrative of this portion of the Olivet Discourse. As Mark records, Jesus saying, Take heed that no one deceived you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, Do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For kingdom will rise against nation, uh, against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. And then, he said, these are the beginning of sorrows. We know that Paul would write something very similar as he's writing to the church at Thessalonica. Because in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, he writes to them and says, But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now that's a term that gets thrown out there a lot when there's Bible teaching about end-time prophecy. And the question is, what exactly is the day of the Lord? Because you can go to the Old Testament 
In the Old Testament, it talks about the dreadful day of the Lord, that there's going to be difficulty, trouble, judgment, that's going to be followed by blessing. And there are those who will write books and give teachings on different signs, perhaps on blood moons and the Shemitahs and all of this. And they will quote from the Old Testament, for example, Joel chapter 2, and they'll say, you know, that the dreadful day of the Lord is a time of darkness and gloominess. And when the sun and the moon will not give its light and the stars the lights will diminish and, and they'll throw out that term the day of the Lord well people begin to think and they'll ask me are we in the day of the Lord the day of the Lord is a specific period of time that we know as we define it from scripture that is not one specific day but a period of time that begins at the tribulation period and that final seven year period for those of you who are new to end time prophecy there is the 70th week of Daniel's, more formally called, the tribulation period, seven years of tribulation that takes place right prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ, where he will come and judge the nations, restore the nation of Israel, and then he will usher in his kingdom for a thousand years. That is the day of the Lord. Folks, we're not in the day of the Lord. So to quote those verses is quoting it out of context and try to apply it to today. So Paul is telling this church concerning the times and seasons, you have no need I write to you for the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. So this, this beginning of sorrows literally is translated uh, labor pains. And, and as we look at it, what Jesus says and Paul says, that as we look at this, these signs, remember, they asked Jesus, what signs are there concerning your coming in the end of the age? They thought that when that magnificent temple was destroyed, it has to be the end of the world. Your return has to be at that same time. And they thought that these events would occur at the same time. And Jesus now explains things differently. It's like in the signs that we just read are like birth pangs, a woman in labor. Now, I went through that. Four, actually, I didn't go through it. Sue went through it four times. And, but I was there. And... And watching her go through that process of, of labor, that the contractions start. And then as she got closer to delivering uh, one of our children, uh, that she, uh, of course, the, the contractions got more intense and they became more frequent. And any woman that goes through that process of labor, you know that as they get closer to the birth of that child, those contractions, the labor pains, become more frequent. They become more intense. So what we were being told that these signs of the end of the age, pointing to his return, are like labor pains, sorrows going to increase in frequency and intensity until he returns and then a new kingdom is birthed. Jesus rebuked those religious leaders for their hypocrisy. You guys can discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the coming of the Son of Man. So last week we talked about how we are to be careful not to be desensitized to all of these things. 
Because one of the signs of the end that's being fulfilled that we're seeing today is in 2 Peter chapter 2, that Peter says in the last days there will be those who are scoffers. And they'll say, where's the coming of the Lord since your forefathers' times? All things continue as they were. And maybe there are those that you know that are at work or in your family that say, you believe in the coming of the Lord? You go to that church that believes in the rapture of the church and all that, and there are those who think that you and I as Christians, as we know that Jesus taught that he's going to come back and we believe in that, that we're weird and a bunch of kooks. But there are the scoffers that are there, but we as Christians, even Christians sometimes have the tendency to think, well, you know what, we don't need to worry about this. And yeah, another end time Bible study. And, and Paul, as he's writing to this young church, he says concerning the times and seasons, those are two distinct words that have different meanings. You have no need for me to write to you. Times is a long, indiscriminate period of time. Seasons are things that happen that will mark those periods of time off. So if any of us think end time prophecy, the return of the Lord, is it important? Does it have anything to do with spiritual growth? Does it have anything to do in, in us serving the Lord? Is it important for new believers even to know about these things? Here's something for your consideration. Paul, when he was on his second missionary journey, he was in Thessalonica between 21 and 30 days. The book of Acts tells us he was driven out after three Sabbaths. Two of the earliest epistles written in the New Testament by Paul is First and Second Thessalonians. You see, as you do a survey of, of the epistles of the New Testament, you have the prison epistles that he wrote from prison. You have the general epistles like First and Second Peter, First, Second, Third John, Jude. Those are general epistles. And then we have the early epistles, which is the book of Galatians, the very first epistle, it is believed that Paul wrote that we have recorded in the New Testament, the book of Galatians, written after his first missionary journey. Then on his second missionary journey, he go from Philippi, he went to Thessalonica, he established that church, was only there for three Sabbaths, he's driven out, he goes to Berea, he goes to Athens, and then he goes to Corinth. While he was on his second missionary journey in Corinth, he writes 1 Thessalonians to them. He says, concerning the times and seasons, you have no need for me to write. He knows that they were well informed. And in 1 Thessalonians, all five chapters end with a reference of the return of the Lord. In chapter 4, specifically about the rapture of the church. In chapter 5, the day of the Lord. He says, comfort one another with these words. And then he follows up with the letter. He follows up with 2 Thessalonians, writes a letter to them because they thought that they were in the day of the Lord. They thought that they had missed the rapture. What happened, Paul? So he writes a letter to them and he says, listen, concerning these things. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which is a very unique chapter, he talks specifically, you find it in no other chapter of scripture. He talks about the rapture. He talks about the day of the Lord. He talks about the Antichrist. He talks about the rebuilt temple, the apostasy or the falling away, the deception, false signs and wonders. All in one chapter. There's no other chapter in Scripture that talks about all those things at once. And he says, don't you remember that when I was with you that I talked to you about these things? I told you these things. And all of this is to a baby Christian church. And Paul thought that it was important for them to know the things concerning the blessed hope of the church. Listen, In this age that we are living in presently, 
it is headed somewhere. And there are signs relative to the time in which we are living in. Jesus says, first of all, verse 8, take heed that you do not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time has drawn near, therefore do not go after them. We know that throughout church age that there have been those who have come along claiming to be Messiah, claiming to to know when Messiah is going to come back. There have been a whole series of counterfeits that have come on the scene in the church age. And even today, listen, you may go after church. You may go to Walmart this week. uh, You may go to uh, Target. You may go to Starbucks. And some of you, this has already happened to, but you may get approached by those who come to you and say, do you realize that there's a mother God? And they'll begin to quote to you scripture and they'll have a discussion that they'll begin with you and they'll begin to confuse you and point out scripture. There's, there's you know, a mother God and you have to believe in mother God for salvation. They'll quote to you from Revelation chapter 21 from the book of Galatians and they're from a, a cult that started in South Korea, the World Mission Society Church of God, where the leader came and he would claim that Jesus was going to come back in 1967, which he didn't, 1988, which he didn't. And then when he died, they believed that he is the Holy Spirit. And you have to be baptized in this leader's name of this church. And they have all kinds of weird things that they believe in and things that are non-biblical, all because they twist the scriptures. And you might think, well, who would get involved in something like that? Who would believe things like that? Well, they have nearly 2 million people in their church that is worldwide. So when Jesus says there are many false prophets and there are many that are going to be deceived, that is so true. And there have been all kinds of spiritual deception, people claiming to be Christ or know when he's coming back. And these false Christs and prophets and teachers can deceive many, many people, and we're told it's going to happen. And we talked a little bit about it in our series, Standing Firm in the Last Days, that week one, as Paul would tell Timothy, that it is going to be perilous times, Timothy. And there are those who are going to come on the scene having a form of godliness, but denying its power. There's going to be the counterfeits that are going to come on the scene that were there when they resisted Moses. Evil men and imposters are going to grow worse and worse. Deceiving. And you must continue in the scriptures, Timothy. And I've said this a lot of times, and I'm going to keep saying it. If you don't know the scriptures today, you're going to get deceived. The things that the church or Christians get involved in, absolutely amazing. The deception, what they're willing to accept, the things that come blowing through the church. Out of Reading, the Bethel church, you have those that, uh, young people particularly that get into what is called grave soaking or grave sucking. And what they really believe that if you go to the grave of a, of a, a saint, a, a Christian leader, a pastor, a, a well-known evangelist, if you go to his grave and you lay on the grave, then you can soak in the anointing. You can suck in the anointing. And they really believe that. Now, we can hear that and we think that's weird. And it's more of a new age kind of mystic kind of thing. And it's just plain creepy as far as I'm concerned. But we know what the scripture says, right? That our anointing comes from the Holy Spirit. That is our source of anointing. 
And there are those who will chase after this movement, and we got to go to Toronto, we got to go to Brownsville, we got to go to these different places to get the anointing. And there's going to be more deception as we get closer to the return of the Lord, because we are told that in Scripture, as 1 Timothy chapter 4, that the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Remember that as John says, test the spirits to see if they are true. Because many false prophets and teachers have gone out into the world. This book is truth. Will you remember that? Everything else is information. If you listen to the news, if you read articles, if you read blogs, things like that. But everything that we hear needs to filter through this book which is absolute truth. And as I discussed last week, it is very sad to hear how many in the church are doubting the absolute authority of the Bible, the inspiration, infallibility, the sufficiency of the Word of God. It's all God-breathed from Genesis to Revelation. And it is truth. And there are many Christians that think you can mix the Bible in with other truths, even though those truths may contradict what the Word of God has to say. Pass it through the scriptures, folks. And if it doesn't pass the test of scripture, take it and lay it aside. Now, in the tribulation period, after the church is raptured, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, as the Christians are worried that we missed the rapture of the church, you know, and Paul's writing to them. He said, don't be concerned. Don't believe that false letter that's going around that has my name on it. It's a forgery. He said, let no one deceive you by any means. In verse 3 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. For that day, what day? The day of the Lord. When the tribulation period begins, we're not in the tribulation period unless a falling away comes first and the Son of Man is revealed. It hasn't happened. And he goes and he talks about how the Antichrist, when he does come on the scene, he's going to go into that rebuilt temple. He's going to proclaim himself as God, to be worshipped as God. And that's where he's going to tell the world to worship him and make their allegiance to him. If you don't, you're going to be persecuted. He says, don't you remember that when I was with you, I told you these things. Nothing has changed, he says. But then he talks about this one, the man of sin, the the son of perdition, that when he comes, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, he writes. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. I find that to be a very fascinating verse. Who's he? Capitalized. The Holy Spirit indwelling the church. When we are raptured, we're a restraining factor. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Can you imagine what the world, what this nation would be like if all the Christians were taken uh, away, taken out of the hour of tribulation that shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. That's when darkness and deception is going to run rampant, unrestrained. We are a restraining factor to keep from evil and darkness from just completely taking over the world and the Antichrist coming on the scene. Hey, when we're raptured, we're a restraining factor. Then he will be revealed, verse 8, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth, destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one, that is the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan with all power signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. In Revelation chapter 6, 
when the first seal is opened up, the beginning of the tribulation period from chapter 6 to 19 of the book of Revelation talks about that seven-year period and what's going to happen. The Antichrist comes on the scene. He's going to come riding a white horse, the four horsemen of the apocalypse there in Revelation chapter 6. And then unrighteous deception and delusion will go forth. There's going to be a worldwide false church that will be on the scene in the tribulation period. Revelation chapter 17, the woman riding the beast. The beast is another uh, reference to the Antichrist. He's supporting that false church. Then he will turn in the middle of the tribulation on that false church, destroy the woman because he alone wants to be worshipped. What's something that Satan has always wanted? To be worshipped, right? To be worshipped as God. And that's what's going to happen. So we see this false deception that's going to take place. And it's going to come forth in its fullness in the tribulation period. Verse 9. Jesus said there will be wars. Commotions. These things must come to pass first. But the end will not come immediately. Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. We know in Revelation chapter 6. The second seal. The second horseman. The red horse. The Antichrist, the first horse on a white horse, he's coming. He's conquering unto conquer. He's going to be a world leader. He has a bow, but not an arrow. He comes by peaceful means. The second rider is the one on the red horse, and he takes peace from the earth that people should kill one another. We're talking about wars that are going to take place. The third rider on a black horse, it's going to bring famine. And then followed by the fourth rider on the pale horse, pestilence. And we know that Jesus talks about the signs of famines and pestilence. But listen, after the first four seals are opened up, the Bible tells us that a quarter of the world is killed. That's staggering numbers. That is equivalent to all of South America, all of Central America, Mexico, the United States, Canada, and Western Europe. Unimaginable. There will be great earthquakes, great signs from heaven. The sixth seal is there was a great earthquake. Every mountain and island was moved out of its place. There will be a great cosmic disturbance, it tells us. And in Matthew chapter 24, verse 9 tells us, Jesus said, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. The fifth seal opened up in Revelation chapter 6 is the cry of the martyrs. Now Luke here gets specific in verse 12 as he says, But before all these things, what things? Verses 8 through 11 They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. Now listen, in verse 12 through 24 that we'll talk about specifically next time, it's kind of like a a pause, a parenthesis that only Luke has that tells what's going to happen immediately after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, in verse 12, there is a time limit. Specifically, because we see this happen in the book of Acts. And the synagogues that he mentions here, and the other accounts, he talks about that there will be persecution in the last days. But the synagogues only had persecuting power until 70 AD. After the destruction of Jerusalem, the Jews were not, uh, you know, uh, persecuting the church. They didn't have that power. They weren't delivered to the synagogues. It would be Rome that would carry on that persecution. 
So the context is before all other things are fulfilled, there will be this process that we know from the book of Acts. It will be thrown in prison. They are brought before kings. They are persecuted. That stops in 70 AD. And then Rome continues that persecution to a great degree. Jesus in the following verses is going to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem again, leading up to that. You're going to be delivered to the synagogues. But it is interesting that Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that within a decade of Jesus giving this teaching on the Mount of Olives, that there were tumults, there were insurrections, there was rebellions in the Roman Empire. That didn't happen under Julius Caesar. That didn't happen under Caesar Augustus, the emperor who ruled during the time of Jesus' birth. There was the Pax Romana. Perhaps you heard that term. Remember it from your high school you know, history lesson of world history. The whole world at that time was in a peace, but it was bludgeoned into a forced peace, bludgeoned into submission under the power of Rome. But a decade after Jesus is rejected, there's rebellions that begin. Four emperors were assassinated in two years. During the reign of Claudius, we know that there was a great famine. You can read about that in the book of Acts. A plague broke out in Rome to where 30,000 people died. There were earthquakes that Josephus tells us happened specifically in Judea. And some of the cities of the Decapolis were destroyed. You can go to one of those ruins even today. There are false messiahs and prophets that had already risen up with their false claims. After Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD, the Bar Kova revolt takes place. The Romans killed him. He was claiming to be Messiah. And then Vespasian, the emperor, he plowed Jerusalem into the ground. They filled up the Terrapin Valley that was next to the Western Wall, filled it full of dirt. There was nothing left. And after 2,000 years... About 30 years ago, they began to dig it out. And what they discovered, that there was a road that was there in that valley. That there was a road that, you know, was a road that Jesus walked on. But you know what else they discovered? We showed you pictures of it. There were all these stones that were thrown down that were piled up. Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. The Romans, when they destroyed the temple, they pushed it over the Temple Mount area into that valley, just as... He predicted happened, happened, and you can see it, the stones that are there piled up. Absolutely fascinating. So these things are going to take place. And they have since Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And you and I are living at a time where we receive more information in real time than ever before. You know, with cable network and in live streams, even live Facebook now recently that's come on the scene on our smartphones and iPads and computers. We have all this information. We can see the problems and difficulties. There's more information where people are buying into false concepts and beliefs and prophets and Messiah. They're able to reach more people. Jesus said, take heed that you're not deceived. Jesus talked about worldwide states of war. In the last century, we saw World War I and World War II. Oceans were crossed. In World War II, the, work, the war to end all wars, 32 million were killed on the battlefield. Imagine that. There were millions more killed in concentration camps, including 6 million Jews. 29 million wounded. Over 20 million civilians killed in that war. It is believed that 82 million people estimated killed in World War II. That's hard to comprehend, isn't it? And it is hard to comprehend. 
that in the tribulation period, after the first four seals are opened up, nearly two billion people are going to be killed in today's population. Today in our world, one Trident submarine. I am told 24 tubes. Each missile, 15 independently targeted warheads. So one sub can threaten 360 cities or targets. That's one submarine. Each weapon, 10 megatons. One megaton is 50 times the power of Hiroshima. 10 megatons is 500 times the power of Hiroshima. One Trident sub has 40 times the destructive power than all the munition that was used in World War II. That's all the armies combined. Germany, United States, Britain, you know, Japan. That's the world in which we live in. You have nations that are developing interballistic missile technology, interballistic missiles with a nuclear warhead on it, such as North Korea, that claim to be able to do that, to hit the United States. Intelligent officials are saying they may have that technology. For the very first time in modern history, Guam and Hawaii are getting information from civil authorities telling them what to do in case of a nuclear attack. Never happened before. That's the world in which we live in. You have Iran that is pursuing nuclear weapons who would love to get that technology from North Korea to be able to put a warhead on you know, a missile to be able to destroy the great Satan, United States, and the little Satan, uh, Israel, because their mullahs and their ayatollahs are the ones that are driving their foreign policy. You've got to understand that they really believe that they're going to usher in the 12th Iman, the Islamic Messiah, by great catastrophic destruction of the world and destroying the United States and Israel. That's the world in which we live in. You have Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 that talks about a major war that will take place in the Middle East. It could be the next major war that takes place. All the players are there, only a few miles away from the border of Israel. You have Russia troops, you have Iranian troops, and there's going to be this large confederation of nations that will come against Israel. God will fight on their behalf. Ezekiel 39 is a very fascinating chapter. It is the only chapter in the Bible that talks about the cleanup after a war. It talks about the war was so destructive that they had to leave the bodies there for seven months. And those employed came and they marked the bodies. You can read it in Ezekiel 39. Little flags. It was interesting. I was talking to somebody who's in the military. He said that's exactly what we were trained to do after a chemical or a nuclear attack, that the bones and the bodies are poisoned, that we go in special suits and we mark them with little flags. Ezekiel's writing about it 2,500 years ago. So bad was the war that Israel takes seven years to destroy the weapons that were used. Another interesting little fact, talking to a nuclear scientist that I know, and he was there helping clean up the Rocky Flats nuclear uh, uh, plant there and destroying the weapons that were made there. You know how long it took them to destroy those weapons? Seven years. And they burned them, just as Ezekiel says. We know in the Battle of Armageddon in Zechariah chapter 12, that Zechariah, looking down through time, says that their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets and their tongues shall 
shall dissolve in their mouths. Sounds like weapons of mass destruction such as the nuclear blast. America, for hundreds of years, in the beginning of our nation, we, for the most part, were isolated by the oceans of other continents. Then came Pearl Harbor, and then the 9-11 attacks on our own soil. Now the technology, as I mentioned, is intercontinental missiles with nuclear warheads, which North Korea claims to have, which Iran wants. That's the world in which we live in. Famines. There's always been famines. And it can always be a huge problem with the population that grows. Do you realize from the time of the flood, when Noah and his family came out of the ark, to the time that it took for the world to reach one billion people, it took until 1850. So the time of Noah's flood, 1850, there was one billion people on the planet when we reached 1850. From 1850 to 1930, the world's population was two billion. From 1930 to 1961, 3 billion. From 1961 to 1976, 4 billion. From 1976 to 1989, 5 billion. Today, there are over 7 billion people on the planet. It has doubled since the 70s. And you put the perplexity of nations with distress and war into the picture, you have the potential for mass losses in a famine. Revelation chapter 6 tells us in that third seal that a quart of wheat for a loaf of bread... Uh, a quart of wheat for Daenerys, a day's wage, three quarts of barley for Daenerys, talking about great inflation and scarcity, pestilence. We're not talking about bugs. It usually follows war, famines. We're talking Ebola, plagues, bird flu. The flu pandemic of 1918 killed an estimated 50 million people, 675,000 Americans called the Spanish flu. It will be much worse in the tribulation period. Earthquakes. From the USGS in Boulder, right down the street. Their statistics tell us that the history of major killer earthquakes by decade in 1890 to 1899, there was one. From 1990 to 1909, there was also one. From 1910 to 1919, three. In the 1920s, it dropped down to two. In the 1930s, there was five. 1940s, it dropped down to four. In the 1950s, there was nine. In the 1960s, there was 13. This is where it gets interesting. In the 1970s, there was 56. In the 1980s, there was 74. From 1990 to 95, there was 125. In Sumatra, in the Indian Ocean, 9.1 quake that happened the day after Christmas in 2004, and the tsunami that followed. It moved the island of Sumatra 100 miles to the southwest. Estimated 280,000 people died from it. There was a flood in China in 1930 that is estimated the numbers are from 1 million people to 4 million people that perished in that flood. In 1976, there was an earthquake in China, 250,000 people to an estimated 655,000 people died. In Haiti in 2010, the earthquake killed 316,000 people. In Japan in 2011, the earthquake and tsunami, 18,400 dead. That's the world in which we live in. 
Jesus said that earthquakes will happen in diverse places. The strongest American earthquake in the continental United States was not in Southern California. It was in Missouri in the 1860s. They estimated that it was over 8.5 magnitude. It made the Mississippi River run backwards, rung the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, and cracked windows in New York. These things, Jesus said, will increase in frequency and intensity like a woman in labor pains. And these are signs that are telling us something. And that when the tribulation takes place and the seals are opened up, then we will see these things come to a final fulfillment leading to the birth of an eternal kingdom that will be ushered in. Now, I know this teaching. Many of you are going to go out and have lunch together. Maybe a nice, pleasant discussion, you know, point for you to have at lunch. But what is the Lord telling us? He warns us to keep watching. He exhorts us to don't go to sleep is what he warns us. Keep watching. Keep waiting. Occupy till they come. Remember that in chapter 19, they're expecting for him to usher in the kingdom immediately. So he turns to the crowds. He tells them a parable of the the minus that the master gave his servants one minus. And then the master went away, but he would return and they were to give account of what they did with that minus, that minus representing the gospel. You and I are living in very unique times. And what has been entrusted to us, may we be good stewards of what the Lord has given to us. We have the gospel message. Listen, Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, as he talked about the day of the Lord, he talked about these things. He said, comfort one another with these words because we have a hope. And the hope is the blessed hope in the return of Jesus Christ for us in the church that I believe will take place before the tribulation period happens. And we can be comforted with that. And we are learning today that this world is not where it's at. Do we understand that? That the world is not our hope. The world is not going to get better and rosier and more cheery. It's going to come to a devastating end. Your hope and my hope is in Jesus Christ. And we have a wonderful future. And Jesus came the first time to take care of the sin problem of mankind going to the cross and dying for our sins. And Jesus on that cross would cry out, it is finished. And if you're here this morning, or you're listening on live stream, or another time of this teaching, and you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, he is your hope. He is the Savior of the world. There is none other. And he is the one that died for you, took your sins upon himself, And then he was put into a grave and he rose again and he validated what he did on the cross. He is the son of God who conquered sin and death. No other religious leader did that. That's what makes Christianity so unique. Every other person that's claimed to be Messiah or religious leaders that has passed on is in the grave. Only Jesus rose from the grave and conquered sin and death and validated that he's the son of God and what he did on the cross. He is your hope and he sits at the right hand of the father and the time is going to come at the sound of the trump that he's going to descend into the earth's atmosphere and then we here alive are going to be gathered to him to meet him in the air, comfort one another with these words, but also Christian, tomorrow isn't promised to any of us. This is a day not to go to sleep spiritually. 
but we must be about, as Jesus said, occupy till I come, as he told that parable, to be about being a witness and being about telling people of the hope that we have in Christ is the same hope that they can have. I'm going to leave you with this thought. Jeremiah, when he was warning the people about the destruction of Jerusalem, they said, ah, we got the temple. Nothing's going to happen. The false prophets came on the scene and said, the captivity is only going to be a couple years. uh, And then we're going to come back and, and Jerusalem isn't going to be destroyed. And Jeremiah, given the truth of God's word, said, it's going to happen. Don't rebel. And they rebelled. And Jerusalem was leveled by Nebuchadnezzar. And as that took place, Jeremiah writing about that, he says, summer's over. Harvest is in, and we're not saved. You know, when the rapture happens, there are going to be those, and if the Lord comes in our generation, those that you know, those that you care about, those in your family, those that you work alongside of, there are going to be those who are going to be saying, summer's over. Harvest is in, and we're not saved. Give them the blessed hope that Jesus Christ came because he loves you and died for you, and he's coming back for his bride. And you and I, we're living in this generation to where we got a front row seat of things that are taking place that we're going to talk about next time that are being fulfilled right before our very eyes that is telling us very clearly that you are in the last days and that the Lord's coming back. Listen, we see the storm clouds gathering. You guys can discern the face of the sky, but you can't discern the coming of the Son of Man. And what does it mean for us as a church? It means that we can't get distracted with a lot of other things, but we must be about the king's business and giving the gospel and giving the truth to this community as much as we can and being a light and giving God's love to others and to stand on the truth of God's word. And I pray that we are that church that is a light on the hill, to this city, to this community, to as far as we can reach because Jesus Christ is alive and he's coming back. Amen. And he's our hope. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this teaching, these words that as we considered them, it's a heavy teaching. But, Lord, through this, you are trying to get something across to us, and that is things are not just continuing as they are. But, Lord, that Jesus Christ did come and die for our sins. The first time he came, the suffering Savior, to save us from our sins, from eternal damnation that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're here, you've heard the gospel that Jesus went to the cross to die for your sins. We've all sinned, every single one of us, and the wages of sin is death. And the Bible says, call on the name of the Lord, believe in him, repent, turn to him. And call upon him. And as you do, asking for your sins to be forgiven. And then you believe that he rose from the grave and he sits at the right hand of the Father. He is the Son of God. You will be saved. Will you do that? Today is the day of salvation. Don't pass that up. And you can pray right where you are. Jesus, I come to you a sinner. And I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me. Forgive me. 
You rose again in your life, speaking to my heart. I ask that you sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for hearing my prayer. I thank you for your love for me in this new beginning and help me to walk with you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. And listen, if you prayed that prayer, you're here at this service at this time. Pastor John's up front. As we're going to close here in just a minute. You come up and tell them the decision that you made. Because we want to bless you, make sure you got a Bible, encourage you. But for all of us, Christian, Calvary Chapel, listen. Don't go to sleep. Keep watching. Keep waiting. Keep working. Serving him. Be a light to those that are linked to you in your life. Be a vessel of truth and hope, pointing people to Jesus. Because these are perilous times. And we are rushing towards eternity.